Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Today's tale is set in the former province of Gévaudan in south-central France. The years between 1764 and 1767, following the bloody and costly Seven Years' War, a proto-world war if ever there was one. Gévaudan is an isolated, rugged, rural spot. The French resistance made a stronghold there in World War II largely for this reason. The terrain is rough and mountainous, far too rocky to grow much by way of crops. The locals eked out a living in the hills, tending to livestock. From a young age, they worked alone out in the elements, constantly on the lookout for wild predators, on the lookout for a free meal. Gévaudan is also surrounded by a vast forest, a dangerous and lawless place full of packs of wolves, lurking outlaws, footpads and highwaymen. It really is the kind of place you could imagine in the most vicious of Grimm Brothers' tales. It is against this backdrop that La Bête de Gévaudan, the Beast of Gévaudan, came roaring into the consciousness of the French. Early in the summer of 1764, a young woman provides us with our first description of the beast. While caring for her cattle, a large beast came bolting out of the forest. It was the size of a calf with an unusually broad chest, a huge mouth full of canine teeth, and fiery eyes. The beast had a shaggy, reddish mane and a dark line running the length of its spine. Far more interested in the cowherd than the cattle, the beast came rushing at her with remarkable speed and dexterity. A witness would have been done for, but for the fact that several large bulls were between her and the beast. The gang of bulls reportedly charged the beast, till it turned tail and ran back into the forest. The cowherd reported the incident, but was turned away, everyone else believing the animal to be nothing more than a large wolf. However, soon after this, 14-year-old Jean Bollet would be eviscerated. A mutilated body found dumped outside the village of Saint-Étienne-de-Lugdaris. A month later, another victim showed up, badly mauled. A 15-year-old girl near Poilaran. She barely lived long enough to give a description of the beast that was very much like the animal in the first encounter. It was around this time that people started to entertain the possibility they had a monster living among them. In September 1764, a young shepherd boy disappeared near the village of Laval. Partially eaten remains were found later in the hills. This was followed by an unrelenting spate of attacks on lone men and women tending to their animals. The horrible disfigurement of the victims suggested both an extremely powerful beast and a propensity to play with its meal before it ate. Speculation of the sudden explosion of attacks led some to believe they were in fact looking for two beasts. No wolf could traverse the rocky hills with anything like the speed that this thing moved at in any case. 
In January 1765, one Jacques Potifay was attacked by the beast while out with friends. He fought it off with a pike, an act of bravery which won him royal accolades and a free education, although he wasn't the only person to get the better of the beast. In August 1765, Marie-Jean Vallée was walking with her sister when the beast leapt out. Armed with a spear, Marie squared up to the beast, and after an epic battle with the monster, sent it scarpering with a chest wound. She won no royal plaudits or free education, but at least there is a fantastic-looking statue of her and the beast doing battle in Auvergne, constructed in 1995, to honour the Maid of Givardin. 1765, spate of deaths in Givardin came to the attention of King Louis XV. Concerned that to do nothing would lead to mass panic, and perhaps seeing some chance of redemption for his military who had just lost the Seven Year War. He sent in the army, professional hunters, even his own lieutenant of the hunt, Francois Antoine. As terrified as the locals now were of the beast, they also gave this small army of soldiers and hunters the cold shoulder on their arrival. A large wolf, the likely suspect for the killer beast, Antoine's army called open season on any wolf spotted in the forest. Well over a hundred wolves would be massacred. Some of these wolves were uncommonly large, but the killings continued unabated. The hunters noticed a big difference between a wolf and the beast of this time too. Wolves generally drop when you shoot them. But the beast was hit several times and shook off the shot. A rumour began to circulate that some hybrid mastiff wolf had been bred by these ungrateful locals, and then sent out in pig's hide armour. How else could one explain this creature? Now of course keep in mind this was in the 1760s, when guns had a maximum effective range of around 100 yards. And expert musketeers could maybe get off a shot once every 20 seconds. They were hardly out there with modern hunting rifles. At one point, Dragoon Captain Jean-Baptiste de Hamel mustered 20,000 locals on a mass hunt. They had no luck and generated a great deal of press attention to boot. In 1765, finally the King's Armourer, Francois Antoine, claimed victory after bagging a six-foot-long lone wolf. He sent the body back to the court and left. The attacks continued. Finally, a local hunter named Jean Chastel bagged a large mystery animal. The carcass was loaded on a wagon and taken to the king in Paris. With a long, arduous journey and an unusually hot summer, the carcass went off and was too decomposed to identify at the capital. Law grew around the kill, claiming Chastel shot the beast with a silver bullet, something afterwards associated with werewolves. The attacks did cease after Chastel's kill. All in all, 113 people were killed by the beast of Gévaudan, a further 49 injured. 98 of the bodies were partially eaten. This all begs the question, what was the beast? There are a number of suggestions. 
First, I think we can dismiss the claim the beast was, in fact, a serial killer. There is no evidence of a human killer. The attack marks sound something like a large animal, not a human. The hunters sighted and on occasion shot a mystery cryptid. And that stated without evidence can be dismissed just as easily. Though perhaps a little smaller than one would imagine, a stray hyena is a possibility. A striped hyena did escape a menagerie in 1767 and had to be put down. Does a hyena look like a beast? Well, go check out the picture on historyandimagination.com, follow the link back. I think it's a possibility. Other suggestions run the gamut from a mutant bear, a wolf-dog hybrid, a large trained hound like something out of the Hound of the Baskervilles, possibly owned and trained by Gene Chastel himself. Fans of cryptozoology have suggested several long-extinct beasts, such as the messianicid, the bear dog, or the direwolf. All seem extremely unlikely. Experts generally agree the beast was probably a sub-adult lion. A young adult is the right size. It would move and behave like the beast. It could also shake off 18th century musket shot. A sub-adult has yet to grow that full mane we tend to think of with lions ourselves. The people living in an isolated region, in a time before photographs mistook a lion without a mane for some other monster is completely understandable. How a lion found itself in a forest in an isolated part of France is another question entirely. It's a question which involves much guesswork. Had one of the soldiers, stationed abroad in the Seven Years' War, picked up a fluffy little cub going through Africa, only to dump it when it became too big and too dangerous to handle. Alternately, had a formerly wealthy aristocrat found they couldn't afford to keep a private menagerie anymore, and chosen to dump the animals out in the most wild and desolate place they could find. There has long been speculation Britain had a similar moment in the 1970s, after legislation made it all but impossible to keep a private zoo. The beast of Bodmin Moor, seen by many in the years since, is believed by some to have been a puma deposited there by its former owner. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.